Thank you so much for being part of Parkside Green's Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Steve here. Happy November to all of you. Uh, it's hard to believe we have just two more weeks to go with our fall study. And as we near our holiday break, I want to thank Pastor Adam for recording and producing every single video and podcast. He sets things up, he takes them down, he creates, he creates those links that you click on every single week. He is a true servant leader. Go Adam. So thankful for him. Uh, this week, as we study Luke 13, we will see Jesus's loving warnings. Jesus's loving warnings. You, you know, the Bible's full of warnings. Uh, warnings to help us avoid spiritual landmines. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because when there is real danger, the most loving thing to do is to warn people about the danger. Loving parents warn their kids not to touch hot stoves or cross busy streets. And loving parents warn their children not to chat online with people they don't know or share personal information or videos or photos with strangers. When there is real danger, the most loving thing is to warn people about that danger. And that's what we'll see in Luke 13 as Jesus issues several loving warnings that we'll organize under four headings, uh, which you can see on your notes outline. Number one, focus on your repentance, verses one to nine. Secondly, do good on Sabbath, verses 10 to 17. Thirdly, enter God's curious kingdom, in verses 18 to 30. And fourth and lastly, watch for what's coming, in verses 31 to 35. So we begin with focus on your repentance, in verses 1 to 9. You'll remember that in chapter 12, many thousands of people had gathered around Jesus. And now we're told at the start of chapter 13 that there were some present in that big crowd at that very time that told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This incident is not recorded anywhere else in Scripture, but apparently when some Galileans were trying to offer sacrifices, Pilate put them to death and in this way mingled their own blood with their sacrifices. You can imagine why people were irate and they wanted Jesus's take on the situation. But Jesus is very clear that people who die horrible deaths may not be particularly horrible sinners. The manner of a person's death is not necessarily a verdict on their sinfulness. Instead of speculating about other situations, like maybe they suffered because they were worse sinners than others, we should focus on our own repentance. Jesus tells them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus continues the lesson by bringing up another tragedy in which 18 people died when a tower in Siloam fell on them. Jesus says these people were not any worse than the others in Jerusalem, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, speculating about God's judgments on others often leads to wrong conclusions. Instead, we need to look in the mirror and to recognize our own need to repent of our own sin. There's plenty to be done there. And as we focus, on our own repentance, changing our minds by turning away from sin and turning toward God, 
then Jesus uses a parable to remind us that the opportunity to repent won't last forever. I mean, year after year in the story, when the vineyard owner doesn't see fruit, he is ready to have his fig tree cut down. Just whack it, right? There's been time enough already. But at the vine dresser's request, the owner shows patience in allowing one more year for the tree to still bear fruit. And after that extra overtime period, though, if there is still nothing there, then the unfruitful tree will be cut down. The lesson is whether it's the Jewish people responding to Jesus in the first century or us responding to Jesus in the 21st century, we should not presume that God's patience will last forever. Eventually, now we don't know when, but eventually judgment is coming. So Jesus' first loving warning to his audience then and to us now is to focus on your repentance now. Which brings us to our second section, do good on Sabbath. Do good on Sabbath. When Jesus was teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, there was a woman who for 18 years had a disabling spirit that caused her to be bent over and kept her from fully straightening herself. But now this problem, you'll notice, didn't keep her from gathering with God's people to worship. She went faithfully to the synagogue in her state. And there Jesus noticed her. And he called her over and, and declared, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And when Jesus laid his hand on her, immediately she was made straight. <laughs> 18 years of looking at the ground, hunched over, but at Jesus' word and touch, immediately the woman is made upright. And maybe now she's looking Jesus in the face. She knew that God was the source of her healing, and so she glorified God. But the synagogue ruler was indignant that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He wanted to shut that down right away, so he told the people there are six days for work. You can come on those days to be healed, but not on the Sabbath. Uh-uh. And Jesus is not having it one bit. He uses strong words here, calling the synagogue ruler and his followers hypocrites. All of them, he said, all of you guys would untie your ox or donkey and lead it to water on a Sabbath day. They had compassion on animals, but not on humans in distress. <laughs> when animals needed water on the Sabbath, they would help them out. Well, then how much more should this woman, a daughter of Abraham, part of God's covenant people, whom Satan had bound for 18 long years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Well, how did it all end? All of Jesus' adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that Jesus did. The people could see that it's right to do good on the Sabbath. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of the Sabbath as a day for worship and rest, but also a day for carrying out duties of necessity and mercy. Mercy. <laughs> in a closely related passage in Matthew 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus asked those in a synagogue, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, 
will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a human than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. End quote. Jesus lovingly warns, you see, against misapplying God's law. The Sabbath is not just a time to refrain from activity, but also a time to positively do good. Do good on the Sabbath to those in need. Now that brings us to our third section, Enter God's Curious Kingdom. Enter God's Curious Kingdom. Now the first thing Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God is that it starts out small, but it ends up with amazingly large results. God's kingdom is like the famous mustard seed that starts out tiny at around one-tenth of an inch in diameter, but it can eventually grow into a 10 or 12 foot tall tree with branches big enough for birds to actually perch in. Or, Jesus says, God's kingdom's like a, a tiny quantity of leaven that can spread through three measures of flour, yielding enough bread to feed more than 100 people. We don't see the leaven or yeast at work spreading, but we do see its result eventually. Small beginnings, big result. The kingdom of God is growing, and someday we will see it in its fullness. Jesus and his followers certainly looked insignificant in the eyes of the Roman world at first, but the kingdom that Jesus was instituting would eventually spread and extend to the ends of the earth. When we enter the kingdom of God, we are entering something that might appear small, but in the end, it will be shown to be huge and glorious. Never underestimate God's kingdom. It might look small now, but just wait, just wait. Those who follow King Jesus are part of his quietly growing kingdom that includes a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and people and language and nation. Look at Revelation 7, 9. In its final manifestation, God's kingdom will be incredibly glorious. The second thing Jesus teaches us is that the way into God's kingdom is a narrow door. And there aren't different doors for different people or different ways for different people, just one narrow door. You know, the context is Jesus was journeying to where he had set his face, right? He's heading to the cross in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was on his way, someone asked him whether those who are saved will be few. Something people still wonder about today. Will, will everyone be saved, like universalists teach? Or, or will the majority of people be saved, like most popular polls say? Or will relatively few people be saved? Well, Jesus doesn't directly answer the question, but he does tell his listeners to strive to enter through the narrow door. And Jesus further says that many will seek to enter and will not be able. The third thing Jesus teaches us then is that at some point in the future, the narrow door to God's kingdom will be closed, and those whom the master does not know will be shut out from the house. Don't presume that you can choose to enter the kingdom of God later. 
And it's not going to matter if people ate or drank in the presence of the master or if he taught in their streets, right? Merely hearing Jesus' teaching or having been kind of around the things of Jesus won't do it. Those whom the master does not know, those who are workers of evil, will then depart from the master's presence to a terrible place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of anguish and torment. What a horrible thing it would be to, to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and to oneself be cast out of it. The kingdom of God is curious because even though it grows to be quite big, like a mustard seed or leaven dough does, the way into this big kingdom is through a narrow door. So Jesus lovingly warns people then and people now to strive to enter through the narrow door. And in case we're wondering, in Jesus 10:9, Jesus tells in John 10:9, Jesus tells us plainly, "I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved." End quote. It's also a curious thing, isn't it, that although the door is narrow, People will come from east and west and north and south to recline at table, to feast in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not just for believers in the nation of Israel. It includes people from every point on the compass. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 tells us that those in heaven sing to the slain lamb that by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's a curious kingdom. It starts small and grows big. It must be entered by a narrow door, but includes people from all over the world. And being inside God's kingdom is glorious, while being outside God's kingdom is horrid. There's going to be a great reversal where some who are last now will be first, and some who are first now will be last. Things are not always as they seem. So Jesus lovingly warns people against being left out of God's kingdom, and he exhorts us to enter God's curious and glorious kingdom. Lastly, in our fourth section, Jesus lovingly warns us to watch for what's coming. Now, Jesus had some friends among the Pharisees. We think about maybe Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. And in the current situation, apparently, some Pharisee friends told Jesus to leave the area because Herod wanted to kill him. And Jesus compares Herod to like a deceitful, crafty fox. And he sends Herod a message that he's going to continue doing what he's doing to cast out demons and perform cures, and he's going to finish his course or reach his goal. And yes, Jesus must continue on his way because finishing his course means perishing in Jerusalem, like so many prophets over the years had done. Herod's desire to kill Jesus then when he was not yet to Jerusalem, that's not going to throw Jesus off schedule. Uh-uh, no, 
two-bit politician is going to change Jesus' plan. And ironically, Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, was actually the most dangerous place for a true prophet. So Herod wouldn't be the one to kill Jesus. It would be Jerusalem's leaders who'd be calling for Jesus' crucifixion. The whole sad situation moves Jesus to lament. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a, a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not. You would not. Though Jesus desired a nurturing, loving relationship of protective care, in the end, Jerusalem and its leaders rejected him. And outside the refuge that's found under Christ's wings, there's judgment. Ultimately, Jerusalem's house, maybe referring to the temple or the city as a whole, is forsaken. It's left desolate by God. It would be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And Jesus himself is going to be leaving the earth soon, and the people of Jerusalem, and in fact all people, will not see him until at his second coming we say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. Now it's hard to know here, it's uncertain, but this may be a kind of a forced bowing of the knee and, and confession that Jesus is Lord, like you read about in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, when it's too late. So Jesus lovingly warns the people of Jerusalem and all of us to watch for what's coming. The same Jesus who cast out demons and performed cures and finished his mission by dying in Jerusalem is coming back to judge and to reign. And that's going to be a time of danger for many who have not yet entered through the narrow door. So Jesus lovingly warns us. As always, there are many possible life applications here. As we finish up, consider these four possibilities among many others. Number one, focus on our own repentance. Instead of speculating about others' spiritual conditions, repent of my own sins. Secondly, rejoice and glorify God for all the good he does, even on the Sabbath. Right? Like the healed woman and like the crowd, rejoice and glorify God. Thirdly, point people to Jesus, who's the narrow door into God's big kingdom. Before the door is shut and they're left outside, point people to Jesus. And fourthly, praise Jesus for finishing his mission in Jerusalem and promising to return someday to judge and to reign. Praise Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your love, including the loving way you warn us of spiritual dangers, just like any loving parent warns their kids. Help us, we pray, to focus on our own repentance, move us to glorify you and imitate you by doing good all the time, including on the Sabbath. We thank you for sending Jesus as the narrow door to salvation. 
We pray that you'll give us love and boldness to point others to Jesus as well. We praise you that Jesus finished his mission in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and that he's returning someday when we'll say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.